Good morning, family. Special and warm welcome to those who are joining us for the very first time. As you probably see in somewhere in the screen, my name is Black, one of the youth workers here at Christchurch Midrand. I have the privilege of opening up God's word for us this morning uh, to hear God's story and how God's story really informs all other stories and not just inform them, but give them shape, meaning, give them uh, purpose, give them sense. Um, and as you've seen with the two stories that we watched today, Christina and Taz's story, uh, I hope that you were encouraged. Uh, I hope that you were encouraged to know that uh, God is working and God is, is doing great things um, in, in people's lives and, and how he, he, he gets those stories of those particular individuals to make sense and to have purpose and to have meaning in light of his story. Uh, so, so I hope that if your story uh, hasn't been connected with God's story, that today may be a, a turning point. In fact, you found us at a very special season in our church calendar where we want to pay extra attention to you and give you extra love as a visitor. And there's no other better way we can do that than to tell you about who Jesus is. So would we bow our heads wherever we are, um, that we may ask the Lord to, to be with us uh, today as we hear him speak to us. Really pray that he may help us listen. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you that you are the greatest storyteller of all time. And that, Lord, your story is the most important story. And I pray, Father, that as we hear you speak to us today um, through your story, that you may help us to listen. That as we listen, uh, our story may start taking shape, form, making sense and, and having true, true eternal purpose. So I pray, Father, that you may help all of us, myself included, that I may be attentive to your word as you speak. In your name I pray. Amen and amen and amen. Again, we are delighted that you are with us, whether you are invited by a friend, dragged to somebody's house to watch this, um, or you part of a search, uh, rather watch party, I nearly said a search party, <laughs> a watch party, um, or you stumbled over us on the internet again. We're delighted that you are with us. We'd really like to get to know your story as you find out uh, more about our story as a church, uh, again, in light of God's story. So so what is your story? Uh, that's, that's a loaded question. Um, but I think most of us, if we've lived more than two decades, we've found uh, ways to give a very truncated version of our story. Uh, enough of the good, enough of the bad, enough of the ugly, so that whoever we're conveying our stories to may get a good sense of who we are and what we're about. But I think the same time in us finding, I think, these helpful ways of giving very truncated versions of our stories, we might be tempted to think that that's all there is to our story. Whatever it is that we have come to understand and retell over and over as we speak to other people, especially when we meet new people. But if God is king and he is sovereign and if he wills that we live past even coronavirus and all the craziness that's happening, that would mean that there's still empty pages in our story, pages that can be filled with, with hope, with love, with good things, pages that can be filled by and with Jesus. And I hope that uh, today might be that turning point for you, uh, that your life uh, and the rest of the pages in your story may be filled by Jesus with himself. 
So today, what I want us to do is just run through a particular story. And this is the story of a middle-aged Afrikaans man named Gorbis. Um, Gorbis is, um, like many South Africans, he's, his story is the South African story. Um, similar to what Christina shared, similar to what Taz shared. But again, uh, Gorbis's story does not make any sense outside of God's story. So we will be looking at at the story of three kings in God's story and how those particular stories shape and inform Gorbis's story, shape and inform and give purpose to your story as well. I'll start off with the punchline of Gorbis's story. Gorbis is a man who, who believes wholeheartedly that nobody could tell him about Jesus. Nobody uh, can ever tell Gorbis about Jesus, so much so that he's convinced that I can't do it, certainly. Right? So if Gorbis is here, you've been dragged by a friend and you're watching me preach right now, you are convinced, Gorbis, that there's nothing that I can tell you about Jesus. Um, Gorbis even believes that Jesus himself could not tell him about Jesus. Um, but here's the thing, like most polite South Africans, Gorbis would not describe his position in those terms. But we see it in how Gorbis lives. I see it in how we live as South Africans, that this is what we really and truly believe in the depth of our hearts. We know it all about uh, when it comes to Jesus. We know it all when it comes to God or the things of God or church um, or anything that has to do with the Christian faith. But before uh, we actually just let the punchline run away with us, we have to back up a bit uh, and unpack this story um, of Corbis and how he ended up uh, believing what he believes. I'll give you the truncated version of Corbis's story. But Corbis, like most South Africans, is born in a family that goes to church um, probably out of the 52 Sundays that go 48 um, of those. Uh, and Easter and Christmas have to be part of that schedule. It does not matter what happens. Somebody could die on Easter or Christmas and Gorbis's family would go to church first and foremost before they go to the funeral. But they, they're those kind of people. And, and Gorbis grew up in that family. Gorbis was baptized um, at a very early age, even confirmed as a teenager. He has both certificates uh, to prove that. Uh, where those certificates are right now, uh, I don't think you know as well, Gorbis. But that's besides the point. Gorbis started Sunday school at a very early age. In fact, he continued in all the other various ministries right up until he ended up as a as a teen leader in matric. Uh, but but Gorbis is that kind of guy. Even now that Gorbis is a grown man with his own family, he makes sure that he instills the same values in his children. Go to church on Easter, go to church on Christmas, and never miss those Dates. If you'd ask Gobis to retell his story, uh, he would make sure that he never forgets to, to mention that when he was 15, he went on a mission trip to Tanzania. You could be asking Gobis to tell you about what happened in the past five years of his life, and Gobis would somehow find a way to go back to when he was 15, when he went on that one mission trip to Tanzania. Uh, so that you may know that Gorbis really does care for those who are less fortunate than him. Gorbis gives to the church um, and Gorbis has read the Bible cover to cover, right? A cover to cover, Gorbis has read all of this. And, and you might be thinking to yourself, oh, what's, what's wrong with all of that? Um, 
well, there's nothing necessarily bad. There's nothing necessarily wrong about all these things. Uh, but again, I I would say that that this is 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 a, a religious performance that we see uh, uh, characterizing Gorbis's life. And here's what I mean: it's it's empty because if you dig a little bit deeper into Gorbis's story, you realize that that God is not informing any of these uh, moves. God is not the one who is instructing Gorbis to do any of these things. You realize that that God's word uh, is not at the center. God himself is not at the center of Corbis's life. And, and, and as we unpack his story, uh, you'll see exactly what I mean. But, but the punchline of Corbis's story is that he is he's somebody who is driven by empty religious performances or duty, not filled by God. Uh, it's things that are devoid of God. And that's what makes these things dangerously deceptive. That's what makes all of this dangerously deceptive that many people will end up in hell wondering to themselves, what more could I have done? What more could I have done? I gave to the church. What more could I have done? I, I loved people who are, are less fortunate than me by giving them bread on the streets. I mean, I, I seem to care for them. Uh, what more could I have done? I was baptized. What more could I have done? I attended uh, the kids camps, the team camps. Again, I went on that one missionary camp. What more? Could I have done? And I just want to say up front, just pause there. You are doing too much. And that is the issue. The issue is that you are doing way too much. God is calling you today to just listen. Listen and stop doing too much. I see this kind of behavior in my own marriage um, and yeah, largely from, from me, obviously, again, like any decent husband um you 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 might relate to this so so what happens in my house is that my wife is in charge of cooking uh, i'm in charge of washing the dishes um again like any decent husband i tend to leave the dishes in the sink for a couple of days uh, so say two to three days the dishes would be there don't judge me you know yourselves as well but what would happen is that I would think, smack, I've left dishes, so how can I try and appease for this, make amends with, make amends with my wife and just show her that I actually do care, that I really appreciate her. Um, so what I would do is that I would, I would Google what is the shop that sells fancy chocolates in Joburg, right? Um, and I'll try and find one that's outside of Midrand so that I can really prove that I worked hard uh, to get this chocolate. So I drive from work to go to this place, um, and when I get there, I realize the chocolate is actually more expensive than I thought, uh, so I have to dip into my savings. I'm sacrificing again, uh, drive all the way back home, get to my house, and give my wife the chocolate. In fact, this is a true story, right? Um, so I give my wife the chocolate, and my wife would would take the chocolate, but at the same time, give a very strong gaze at the pile of rotting dishes in the sink. And she would say to me, I wish you had just listened. Then try and go out of your way to do all of this so that you can prove that you love me, you care for me, or you're trying to cover up the pile of dirty, rotten dishes that are just unavoidable. And as you walk into the house, you see them. I, I wish you had just listened. That would have been loving. That would have been better. That would have been what would make me feel that you care for me. Just listen. 
quick side note husbands i probably just saved your marriage right now she doesn't want that trip to france just put the toilet seat down bro that's all she wants put the toilet seat down but but on the real though what my wife is saying there is that if i just listened it would show that i i just don't hear her but I'm actually considering her. I acknowledge her. I know she exists. I love her. And I I show it just by listening. And I hope that that's what would happen to you today, to all of us, that as God speaks, as God speaks from his word today, that you would just listen. Stop doing too much. You probably feel burdened either way because of all the empty religious performances that you've been doing, you probably feel tired. You probably feel like, what more can I be doing so that I can feel like God loves me, so that I can feel that I'm accepted, so, so I, can, I can feel that I'm right with God. Stop doing too much. I pray again today that you would just listen. Let's, let's get into, into God's word as we look at the first king. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at this first king and how the story of this first king speaks into your story, Corbis, speaks into how your story can be shaped, formed, be given sense and purpose. Uh, so let's, let's run through the first king. Uh, this is first Samuel chapter 15 and we're reading from verses 17. Um, right up until verse 24. So first Samuel chapter 15, uh, reading verses 17 to 24. All right. So the first king, his name is Saul. Listen to God's word. Verses 17, this is prophet Samuel speaking. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, verses 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Verse 17 and 18, we are told by the prophet Samuel, that God gave King Saul a direct instruction. So just a little bit of history. The Amalekites were the same nation that gave trouble to the Israelites when God was rescuing them from Egypt to the promised land. And so God says, yo, I want you to go back, put those dudes, uh, I mean, rather destroy those dudes um, and, and make sure that you don't leave anybody alive, even their livestock. Don't take anything. Just go on mission and do what I tell you to do. Right. So we see that in verses 17 and 18. But but listen to verses 19, where King Saul actually defies a direct command from God. So verse 17 and 18, they're the dishes. Just do what you're supposed to do with them. But verses 19, listen to what Samuel says of Saul. Why then did you you not uh, why then did you not obey the voice of the lord why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the lord why did you not listen so why did you defy a direct command god told you what to do but you clearly went against it Verses 20, we get a glimpse of what is actually happening in Saul's heart. What is driving him? What is the power in his heart? What is causing him to do what he's doing? Who is he actually listening to if he's not listening to God? Listen to what it says in verses 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on mission. On I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. 
See what he's doing there. So in one part of the verse, he's saying, no, 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 I, I did listen. I, I went on mission and I did destroy the Amalekites. That's, I did all of that. And so he's trying to justify why he actually defied the command. He's trying to move the direction away from what the actual issue is. And he's saying, no, 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 but I did go. But that's not the issue. Listen, he adds on to God's command. He says, well, I, I, I went and I also brought the, 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 the king of, of Amalekites back. I, I brought King Agag back with me. And so the question is, who asked you to do that? God did not ask you to bring back the king. He asked you to destroy everybody. But you adding on to God's word. And so and so we start seeing the, the arrogance in his heart. We start seeing what the, the heart of sin really is. And that is this idea of believing that you know better than God. You know more than God. You just not convinced that God knows what he's doing. And so you want to add on to the command that is given. You. This is really reminiscent of, of, of Eve in Genesis 3 verses 3 when the serpent comes to Eve and says to Eve, yo, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of the tree uh, of good and evil? And Eve says, yes, yes, he did say that. And he also said we shouldn't touch it. Wait up, Eve, there's no way where God said you should not touch it. Why do you feel the need to add on? To God's command. So, so what Eve was suffering from there is really just the arrogance in her, in her heart saying that I don't think God knows what he's doing. I'm not convinced that you really were supposed to give me a command like this. So, so I'll add on to it. I'll help you, God, because clearly you are clueless. That's what's happening in the heart of King Saul here. That's what's happening in your heart, Gorbis. When, when you think that you want to add on to what God has already uh, instructed you, but you think, no, 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 I, I don't think you precisely know how to be worshipped, God. So, so I'm going to do all these things so that I can get closer to you because you, you just don't have the, the capability or capacity to bring me close to yourself. So, so I want to add on to all of this. So we see this, this, this glimpse of, of arrogance that's coming out of King Saul's heart. Uh, Let's continue in verses 21. King Saul is still speaking to Samuel here. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. See what he does now in verses 21. He says, and by the way, let me just tell you, I, I know God said that we should put everything to destruction, but, but the people thought to themselves, well, no, 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 let's take some of the good spoil. Let's take some of the good sheep and oxen and we'll sacrifice that to God, right? And so what he's doing is that he's shifting blame. You, the king, Saul, all responsibility lies with you. The people cannot do anything unless you tell them to do so. Even if they do do something, it still rests on your shoulder because you are responsible. You, the king, you're supposed to be in charge of everything. Make sure that things are running the same way God had instructed you. Uh, uh, to to run them. Again, this is reminiscent of of Adam in Genesis 3. When God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, wait, God, that's not me. It's the woman that you gave me, right? So, so you see again this, 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 this heart of sin 
all the way from Genesis 3 right up until where we are now in 1 Samuel and we see it in the heart of King Saul. He, he wants to blame the people. But if all responsibility lies with you, Adam, if all responsibility lies with you, King Saul, basically what you're saying to God is we, we found a better way to worship you. You just don't know. Again, God, you are clueless. We know how to do it better. We, we know what the right way is. We, we know how to maximize uh, uh, all the sacrifice so that we can give you ultimate glory. God, you don't know. You don't know. We can play God better than you. And that's what really happens with the heart of sin. It's expressed here in sheer arrogance. If this is as good as me saying to, to my wife, I, I get that keeping the house clean by me washing the dishes gives us a hygienic environment. I, I get it that when I wash the dishes, at least our, our daughter will have a clean house so that she can grow and become all that God wants her to be. I, I get all of that, that, that when I clean the dishes, uh, I, I, there's, there's enough dishes and enough pots for you to cook the healthy meals that will, will nourish us and help us to serve the Lord better and to live and grow and become great people. I, I get all of that, but I, I just think chocolate is better, right? I think chocolate is better than, than, than the hygienic environment. I think chocolate is way better than having an environment for our child to thrive in and grow with no hindrance. I think, I think fancy chocolate is better than actually you cooking healthy food for us that nourishes us. I, I think that we could just sit here and eat chocolate all the time. How, how ridiculous is that? How, how arrogant of me to think that? How, how stupid and foolish of me to think exactly that way? But but that's what we do with our lives. That's what you're doing with your life, Corbus. You 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 taking as something that's that's as good as as chocolate and comparing it to 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 the life that God is calling you to a life of obedience, a life of surrender, a life of relinquishing all your power, a life of relinquishing all control, knowing that you are a subject and not the creator. You are creation. You are the invention and not the inventor. In, in, in Jeremiah 7 verse 23, I paraphrase, God says, if you just listen to me, all will be well in your life. Uh, you, you heard what Christina said. Christina said that, that she was getting to a point where she was feeling in her life, um, after, after, after her, her husband had, had horribly just, just cheated on her, where she was saying, God, like, like, what, what do you know? Right? Do you even, do you even love me? Right? And, 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 and she, she was tempted to fill all of that with religious, uh, a duty. What can I do more so that this God can, can love me? I've done it all. In fact, I grew up in church. I, I did everything. You know, my husband was not supposed to do what he's done uh, to me. And so you want to add all, you want to add on to all of that with your performance. And God would say, no, 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 no. You know, stuff does happen to people. Good uh, 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 things happen to people. Bad things happen to people. It's the nature of the world. But all that you're supposed to do in good times and bad times is listen to me. Don't add on to my word. I know what is good for you. Again, Jeremiah 7.23. Just listen. I know what is good for you. Samuel sees through the foolishness of Saul in verse 22. And listen to what he says. And Saul said, Samuel said, um, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifice and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 
So, so Samuel sees through the foolishness of Saul and goes straight for his jugular and says, yo, and there's no other way to put it, Corbis, and I, I'll put it directly and straight to you right now. God does not care about any of that stuff. He doesn't. He doesn't care, Saul, about, about the, the fats of rams. He doesn't care about your sacrifice. What he really cares about is his word. And he wants you to listen to it. So God does not care about your religious performance. God does not care about all the things that, that you want to add on to his word. Right? You, you can read the Bible as much as you want. Right? Read it cover to cover. Come up with the seven different perspectives of how the world is going to end. God does not care about your eschatology. God does not care about how much knowledge you have. Corbis, my friend, you are better off reading the Hezekiah. Annoyed, right? You are better off just going to pick and pay checkers, picking up a Heisgenoid and reading that. Right? Just a quick side note. I, I grew up, I grew up believing that Heisgenoid is a direct translation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an Afrikaans equivalent of You Magazine, right? In my ignorance, right? I just thought You Magazine is for English speakers and, and, and Heisgenoid is You Magazine for Afrikaans speakers, right? But, but even in that, it just shows my arrogance of not wanting to go ask Afrikaans speakers, yo, what, what does this actually mean? Going to those who know the language, going to those who, who can explain to me what this really means so that I'm not, I'm not living on, on, on assumption. I'm not living on, on, on ignorance. I'm not living on arrogance. But, but for all my life, I just thought, well, you magazine is an English translation of his genoid. I, that's me. Um, but even in that, it's a silly example, but it just shows my arrogance of not even wanting to humble myself and asking an Afrikaans speaker saying, what does Hezgenoid mean? But we don't do that. God doesn't care for your religious performance. He doesn't. You could read the Bible cover to cover. There's no register in heaven. Every time you come to church on a, on a Sunday or Easter or Christmas, it's not that God is in heaven taking down register to say, Gorbis came to church this Sunday, Gorbis did not come to church on this Sunday, so there's bad marks for you there, there's good marks for you. God does not work like that. You can go to as many mission trips as you want. Again, if it's devoid of God, if you're doing that so that people can worship at the altar of your self-righteousness, yo, then it's not what God cares for you would have gained your reward when people praise you, but it's not what God has called you to do. Prophet Samuel digs the knife even deeper. Let's continue, read verses 23, um, and he actually just puts it plainly before King Saul what his issue is. For the re- for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. So it's pretty clear there when he speaks about the sin of divination, he's saying that Saul thinks that he's a a puppeteer, a puppet master, and he's controlling God. He's tugging at the heartstrings of God with his religious performances. And because he, he believes he's doing that, he thinks that he can predict God's response to it. See, if, if, if I just tug at the heartstrings of God by going to church on a Sunday, well, God is going to respond this way and that's going to give me brownie points with him. Well, if I tug at this 
hard string. God is going to respond this way and then God will, will, will give me more brownie points. That's, that's the sin of divination, of thinking that you can predict how God is going to respond. You cannot even predict what's going to happen at the end of the sermon, let alone predict what's going to happen when you meet the Lord himself. If you don't know who he is truly, you haven't listened to his word. You don't have a relationship with him and you just playing again this religious game and you talk thinking that you can tug away at the heartstrings of God and predict how he's going to respond to you. Uh, the next line, uh, Samuel says, this, this is idolatry. You have created an idol. Who you believe you are worshiping is not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the universe, but it is a God that is made in your image, a God that you have created in your mind, a figment of your imagination. When God creates us in his image in Genesis 1:27, we are supposed to reflect him and not the other way around. God does not reflect us, but this is a God in your heart. This is the God that you've created, the idol that, that is, is, is appeased by your religious performances. And so the goal is clear there in verses 24, who your true audience is. Listen to what Samuel says. Saul said to Samuel, um, or rather Saul, listen to what Saul says. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Who did you obey? The people. Who did you fear? The people. You did not fear the Lord. And so, and so there is your clear target audience. You wanted people to see you as you drag King Agag into the city to praise you and say, how amazing is Saul? How amazing is he that he's defeated the Amalekites? How amazing is he that he's so strong? Look at the, at how he's dragging their king through our streets and bringing him into our city. He wanted people to worship him and not worship God. So that is his clear target audience. And, and, and we can see that in how we perform in our empty religious duties. That you want people really to worship you. To, to, for people to say you're an upstanding citizen. For people to say, wow, you're such a, you're such a righteous guy. For people to say you're such a, a nice guy. For people to say, wow, you, you clearly have high values. Look at how many times you go to church. Or, or, or the fact that you've been on a mission trip or you give to the church. All of that. So that when you are around the bride and people are asking you who you are and you tell them all about your, your religious performances, you pull out your CV and you say, look at all the amazing things I've done. People could bow down to you and say how glorious you are, how amazing you are and not God and not point people to who he is by just saying, I'm an obedient servant who's listening to God. You're, you're all glory to him and not myself. That's the first king, right? The, the, the second king kind of gives us a glimpse at how, how we should respond. But this king is also not perfect. He, he, he's imperfect. In fact, as we read about his story, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for us. Stay there in first Samuel because we're going to get back there at the end of the sermon, which we, we're getting closer to now. But, but, but King David here in Psalm 51 has come face to face with the ugliness of his own sin, right? This is a man the Bible describes as somebody who is after the heart of God, but we see that even a man like that falls into sin. He, he has just forced himself on a woman. And secondly, to cover up that sin, he then murders the husband of that woman. And so his friend, the prophet King Nathan, comes to him and confronts him and says, God knows exactly what you have done. 
And you need to repent. He comes face to face with the ugliness of his sin. And in Psalm 51 verses 15 till 17, we read his response. Listen to what it says. David says, Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. David realizes I cannot perform anymore. You do not delight in sacrifice because if you did delight in it, yo, I would perform again. I'm a man known to be after God's own heart. So, so, so listen, you don't want any of that. So I relinquish it. I, 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 I don't want to do it anymore. I, if, if you wanted it, I would give you verses uh, 16. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you would not despise God will despise your empty religious performances you will end up in hell wondering what more could I have done and God says I did not want anything in the first place because all that you did was tainted by sin all that you did was driven by your arrogance all that you did was driven by your self-righteousness and how you want people to worship you at that altar I did not want any of that I did not want your pile of stinking dishes. I did not want any of that. So what did God want? God wants a contrite and broken heart. A heart that would say, here I am, Lord. I've done it all and it all doesn't work, but I want to give my heart to you. I want you to come into my life. I want you to be my king. I want you to be my savior. I want you to rescue me. David sees that. He sees the 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 harmfulness of his own sin, the ugliness of his own sin. And so he's sorrowful towards his sin. He's desperate for God's rescue. He's desperate for God's salvation. Here David is saying, I surrender. I've heard you, God. You have used the prophet Nathan to come to me to tell me that I'm a sinner. I've heard you. I listen and I'm surrendering. Let's move on to the third king as we close because David, as much as King Saul was was full blown uh, in his arrogance and we see how David moves away from that and repents, David was still not perfect. The last king I want to point you to is King Jesus. King Jesus fulfilled the obedience that God required of Adam, the obedience that God required of Saul, the obedience that God required of David. King Jesus fulfills that obedience. In Philippians chapter uh, 2, listen to how Paul describes Jesus in verses 8. He says, and being found in human form, this is Jesus. He, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Excuse me. He, he, he being found in the, in the form of human, he, he became humble and, 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 and pursued obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is who God looks at when he looks at those who listen to him, right? And those who listen to him in simple words are called Christians. But God does not look at Christians and think, well, Christians are amazing. Look at how how clean they are. No, 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 no. He does that through the lens of looking at Jesus. Jesus' obedience is what covers my disobedience. Jesus' righteousness is what covers my unrighteousness. Jesus' beauty is what covers is my ugliness. Jesus' light is what covers my darkness. Because everything that I will do 
coming to church, reading the Bible, praying, giving to the church, going on mission, all of that will still be tainted by my own sin. How can God accept any of those? How can any of those things be considered good? Well, it is only through the obedience of Jesus. When God in eternity past knew that you and I would sin, Gorbis, knew that we would turn our backs against him. He made a plan for us to be rescued. He made a plan for us to, to come back to him. And God said, who's going to rescue these people? Jesus obeyed and said, I'll do that. And Jesus came on the earth, being found in human form. As Paul tells us here, he still obeyed uh, God to the point where he even died on the cross. Did Jesus suffer in the same way we suffer? Yes. Was he hungry in the same way we hungry? Yes. Did he walk the dusty streets of Palestine, breathe the same air that we breathe, have to work and toil like we did? Amen and amen. But did he sin? He never sinned even once. All of that, all of, all of that obedience so that your disobedience may be covered. So that your religious performances that are empty, God can overlook all of that and look at what is true in Jesus. So all you have to do today is listen to the call of God over your life to come to him, to trust him, to believe in him, to give your life to his son who is the obedient, uh, the true Adam. When Adam failed, when King Saul failed, when David failed, when you and I fail, we turn to Jesus. Again, we'd have to be, we'd have to be so arrogant to think that, that Jesus, who, who was obedient, that we could be beyond him. Jesus, who humbled himself, we would be super arrogant to think that we shouldn't humble ourselves before God. But that obedience that Paul speaks of led Jesus to the cross because that's the mission that God had sent him to, to go do. And when God sends King Saul to the mission, King Saul tempers with the mission and taints it with his own, with his own religious, uh, empty performances. But Jesus does exactly what God told him to do, to die on that cross. So that you and I don't have to take it upon our shoulders. To die on that cross so that you and I may have our eyes open to truly see who Jesus is. To truly see who we are in light of who Christ is. To see the ugliness of our sin. To come face to face with it. So that we can give our lives to Jesus. Jesus is the one who is obedient. The Holy One. The one who is in charge. Who is sovereign. Who is mighty. Most glorious. We are filthy, dirty sinners that need him. Your story does not make any sense, Corbis, outside of the story of Jesus. It's only Jesus' story that gives sense and meaning and form and purpose to your story. So today you have two options of how your story can end. I told you not to leave First Samuel, but let's go back there. Two ways in how your story could end. The first way, it could end with you and Jesus. Read with me First Samuel 15. I will read verses 25. Listen to what it says there. Now therefore, please pardon my sin. This is Saul speaking. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord. 
This is how your story can end. That from here on, you would be going before the Lord and bowing to Him, repenting of your sins and saying, Lord, I relinquish all power. Take control over my life. I am but a sinner. You are holy and glorious. And I want you to reign as king over my life. I am not the king of my life or I am not the queen of my life. I want you to be the one who is directing me, who's leading me, who's giving me meaning and purpose. Your life could end in that way. That from here on, all the other empty pages in your book, in your story, are filled with daily repentance. Remember what Tess said at the beginning where she said, yo, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still sinning every day, but, but thank the Lord that I have him and I can give my life to him every single day in repentance and saying, Lord, I, I might have sinned today in word, uh, in deed, in thought, but here I am knowing that the blood of Jesus cleanses me. So please forgive me. Every single day, every day faithfulness, every day repentance. That's how the pages of your life can be filled from here on. And I want that for you. I pray that for you. And I hope that you would want that exactly for yourself as well and, and relinquish your religious performances. Doesn't matter if you come to church or not, but do you listen to God through his word, by his Holy Spirit? Has he given you his Holy Spirit in his heart? In your heart, rather. And you listen to him. Or will your life end in another way? Listen to what verse 26 says, 1 Samuel 15. Verse 26 reads as follows. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Are you not going to listen to God today, this morning? Are you going to reject him and turn your back uh, towards him? Turn your back away from him because you think that you can do a better job of running your life. Or if that is the case, that Samuel tells us that God will turn his back away from you for all eternity. When Adam sinned and turned his back away from God, God said that, well, you can go live your life, but this life that you want to live will be full of destruction, will be full of, of, of murder, will be full of sadness, will be full of sickness. And that's exactly what has been happening ever since Adam. In fact, just after Adam, his own sons killed, uh, or rather one of his son killed his other son. And we see just that, that, that first family murder recorded in, in the Bible. And, and it hasn't stopped ever since. Why? Because Adam rejected God. King Saul rejected God. King David rejected God by sinning against uh, Bathsheba and, and Uriah and, and many else in the Bible we read of. And it comes to me and you. We've rejected God from the day we were born and we continue rejecting God and piling up the dirt of, of or dishes uh, in, in our hearts and it keeps on becoming more and more and we continue to reject God. So is that how you want your life to end? Is that how you want the rest of the pages of your story to be filled? Just rejection of God, rejection of God. If that is the case, then God will reject you for all eternity. I wouldn't want that for you. And I pray that today you would listen, listen, stop performing and make the right decision to give your life to God and God alone. Let him be your king. Let Jesus be who rules in your heart today and forevermore. So I'm going to wrap it there. Martin will come after this 
and he will pray with you. And hopefully that you would pray the same prayer and ask the Lord to come into your heart to rule as king and sit on his rightful throne. And that you would make a decision not to reject, but to repent. You have just heard the word of God. And there will be some amongst us this morning who know, who know that God is talking to you. And you have felt the Holy Spirit pressing in upon your heart and upon your soul as the word of God has been opened up to you. You need to respond. If you want to become a Christian, you need to cross a line. You need to take a step. And you do that through prayer. That's how you cross a line. So I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to get right with God today, not tomorrow, not next week, there may not be next week. If you want to get right with God today, why don't you pray this prayer with me? It's a very personal prayer. It's a very private prayer. But it's the prayer you need to pray today to get right with God. Now, you may not yet be ready to pray this prayer, and we understand that. And so we're not placing any pressure upon you. It is a personal matter between you and God. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Let me tell you the prayer that I'm going to pray, and then you need to decide whether you want to pray that prayer. So you need to know what it is. The prayer is this, Lord Jesus. I don't understand it all, but I know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for my sin. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you help me to live under your leadership? Now, if you want to pray that prayer, if you feel that God the Holy Spirit is pressing in upon your heart, your mind, today, well, then you repeat those words just quietly in the back of your, back of your head. It's between you and God. You repeat these words. Lord Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for my sin. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you help me to live under your leadership? And Father, we thank you that when we turn to you with all our doubts and all our questions, but when we cry to you for mercy, that you have promised to hear us and to answer. And so, Lord, this morning, will you supernaturally work today? And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.